2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Alice Garner and I'm the host of the channel. And today we'll be talking to Joanne Galan about her new book, Scripting the Moves, Culture and Control in a No Excuses Charter School, which was recently published by Princeton University Press. Joanne Galan is an assistant professor of public policy and education and an assistant professor of sociology at Vanderbilt University. She received her PhD at Princeton in sociology, a master's in social sciences from the University of Chicago and a bachelor's degree in English from Amherst College. Um, Dr Galan's book is an ethnographic study providing a rare in-depth analysis of the behavioural scripts used in a no excuses charter school and what they mean for students, teachers and school leadership and indeed for the communities in which they're based. Um, So perhaps, Joanne, you could start by telling us a little more about yourself and what led you to the research that informs this book.
0: Thank you so much for having me today, Alice. Um as you mentioned, I'm a, a professor of education here at Vanderbilt and this book began as my uh, doctoral dissertation in sociology. And I first got interested uh, in the topic um, because I'm a, uh, I'm Asian American and my parents are immigrants uh, from Taiwan and there was this concept I had learned in graduate school called cultural capital. Uh, it's this idea of cultural know-how. And um, in graduate school, I was learning about how, you know, cultural capital played a role in why certain students were more successful in school. They, they kind of knew the unspoken rules of the game. Um, and I began to think about, you know, could this cultural capital be taught and I'd heard of these uh, these No Excuses schools and a practice they have called SLANT. And that practice stands for sit up, lean forward, ask questions, nod for understanding, and track the speaker. It's an acronym. And I thought, huh, uh, that's intriguing. That is making very explicit a set of middle-class norms about showing attention. And I thought, you know, can, can can this cultural capital be taught? Um, are these schools actually trying to teach the, this cultural capital? And could that be a reason why they've been so successful? So that was what led me um, to, to look at these schools more and try to understand what was happening inside of them. Um, so, so, yeah, that led to about... Uh, 18 months uh, of fieldwork inside one of these schools um, to the dissertation, which then I ended up uh, turning into a book, um, spent a lot of time uh, kind of rewriting that dissertation to make it more accessible and tell um, a more comprehensive story about students and teachers um, and school administrators at the school.
2: I, I think uh, I get the sense that it's quite unusual to have this um inside perspective certainly in, in so much detail and that was something that I found really um fascinating about the book um, it occurs to me before we get into what you observed and, and the conclusions that you came to f- particularly for listeners who live outside of the United States it might be worth explaining what a charter school is and where they sit within the broader U.S. Um, education system
0: Sure. A charter school uh, is a public school of choice. Uh, That means, you know, in the U.S. system, most students are assigned to a school based on uh, where they live, based on their residence. That's called their neighborhood school. Um, And the idea is that this can lead to some inequities, right, as we have residential segregation. um, So students who live in, you know, more disadvantaged neighborhoods often are attending schools that are Uh, under-resourced, perhaps lower performing. So one of the ideas of charter schools was to sort of break this link between neighborhood and school so that students could attend, um, you know, a different school that's outside of of their local zone. So charter schools are schools of choice. Um, Another difference, um, so so families can apply to these schools and are typically admitted by lottery or, or some process like that. Another difference between charter schools and public schools is that they tend to be freed from many um, state and local regulations that govern traditional public schools. And this allows them uh, to be more innovative or more experimental. At least that was one of the incentives um, behind, you know, starting charter schools. Um, You know, there's research that That shows maybe charter schools actually aren't that much more uh, innovative than traditional public schools, but that's the idea. They can, for example, hire teachers outside of the teacher union or they might be able to extend the instructional day or use a different kind of curricula or have um, a particular focus, like a focus on the arts or a focus on um, a certain language. Um, How many charter schools roughly
2: would there be in operation now in the US? Do you have those figures to hand, or at least a rough idea? Yeah, there
0: are um, I'm not remembering off the top of my head actually, but they serve about six percent, six to seven percent of public school students uh, in the United States. So so actually a very you know small percentage of students, but they are uh, important in the policy landscape.
2: And do they tend to be concentrated in urban areas? Is that correct?
0: You know, they're not. They are, yes. um, They are concentrated in urban areas and and more likely uh, to be serving um, students of color, uh, low income students. But they, but they're also in you know non urban areas. I think um, there are there are
2: some moves in some parts of Australia to a kind of charter school approach but certainly um, not, it, it's certainly not as present uh, and it's it's been discussed but not implemented widely here. So um, I guess it's interesting also from the outside of, of the US to see how it's developed and, and where it heads but we might come back to that. Um, so you spent 18 months observing the life of of one particular school, which you call Dream Academy um, in the book. I'm just wondering how you went about getting
0: access, that kind of access. Yeah, these schools um, have been difficult for researchers and journalists to access, and um, this is actually one of the first books to have uh, kind of taken in-depth look at these schools. And I think I I probably just got a little bit lucky. So I um, approached a few of these schools and, um, you know, some of them, you know, had kind of formal processes. Some of them are part of networks, I should say. The original idea of charter schools, they would be these kind of standalone, um, distinct schools. But now what we see in the The American Charter School landscape is a lot of these charter management organizations, which are charter networks that run, you know, um, dozens of schools or even hundreds of schools. And um, so, yeah, so I applied um, in some cases to these charter networks to to get permission to to study the school. Uh, But the school I eventually studied was just a very small kind of independent network with just um, with just two schools at the time. And, uh, I just approached the kind of the founder, the head of the school, and I told him about my interest in cultural capital and my interest in kind of how these schools were teaching, um, social and behavioral skills. That was kind of more my interest versus the academic side. And, uh, he said the school was also interested in that. So it was receptive, um, to having me come and, um, I'd gotten permission to study two different schools, one in a big network and one here. And why I ended up choosing this one is that he was, you know, very open to my basically being <laughs> being able to view what I wanted, um, where the other school said, you know, certain teachers, certain times here, they sit, kind, of, kind of gave me free reign um, to observe what I wanted and also um, gave me access to, you know, some of the behavioral data they collected. So that was uh, important uh, to me.
2: That is a, a really extraordinary level of access and it and it does enable you in the book to um, talk a- across the range of, of, well, different classes and activities and even one-to-one interviews between teachers and leadership, which is really quite um, fascinating. Um, maybe if we talk about uh, you, you began to explain slant and it would be interesting to hear you unpack the the kind of behavioral codes that that you were interested in analyzing um and also perhaps in to explain a little what it meant to be a no excuses school which is I understand the way that it was framed what did what did that actually mean no excuses
0: sure yeah no excuses uh, has come to categorize this group of urban charter schools that follow a very similar model. So in the States, these are networks, large networks, some of the largest charter networks like KIPP, Success Academies, Achievement First, Uncommon Schools. Um, And they follow, uh, as mentioned, kind of a very rigid behavioral model. Um, it's been called, you know, sweating the small stuff. So the idea is these schools don't just pick their battles as a typical urban school might do, but they really pick on minor student behaviors so as to prevent more significant kind of misbehaviors from occurring. Um, And the schools have a very consistent behavioral code where teachers are constantly monitoring uh, these very small behaviors, recording them, and students are uh, earning uh, rewards or consequences based on their adher- adherence to the system. So, um, you know, in the book, there's a list of, I don't know, 30, 40 behaviors that these schools are are monitoring things from putting a head on a desk to rolling your eyes at a teacher to not following directions um, and on and on. And uh, the term no excuses itself Actually, it comes from sort of a more positive connotation. The teachers at the school translated it in different ways and understood it in some ways as making no excuses for behavior given this sweating the small stuff approach. But it actually comes from this idea of having high expectations for students. So um, it's the idea that we as a school are not going to make excuses for our students' low achievement. We're not going to say, you know, oh, it's, you know, these students have, unstable family circumstances or they've come to us three grades behind and thus we can never get them you know up up to par but we as a school are going to take responsibility and have high and have high expectations for all our students to perform well and get to college
2: so the focus on college seems to be central to the the kind of um the messaging really doesn't it. So perhaps you could talk a little more about that, about the way that the way an ambition uh, for a college experience was sort of built into these codes or scripts.
0: Yes, these schools are um, explicitly college preparatory. That's how they, um, you know, advertise themselves to families, and they are constantly reminding students about college and setting their expectations on college. So, you know, classrooms will be named after different colleges. Um, Students will be referred to not by, you know, their grades, like fifth grade, sixth grade, um, but by the year they're going to graduate from college. These behavioral scripts are justified as a means uh, for getting to college. So, you know, there was a chant the students did every, you know, every morning in the assembly and at the end, you know, it's why do we do this, you know, to get to college. Um, so, yeah, so all the practices there are, are really framed in terms of we're doing things differently than other schools and we're doing things differently because we want to get you to college. How did the the behavioural scripts,
2: um, how were they implemented? That is to say, what you you describe in some detail the initial sort of week or two and and what was involved in in setting up the system so to speak can you talk a little to that
0: yeah so the first couple weeks um of school is orientation and these schools have a longer school year so they start in august and the purposes of those first weeks are really to socialize students into behavioral norms and um first day of orientation, the students come and they all sit or they all sat on the cafeteria floor. And, um, basically teachers went through kind of practices you know, of the school, uh, like slant, um, like their point system, their behavioral system. One thing that was particularly striking to me, I think in recognizing, um, how rigid these scripts were or how tightly monitored the students would be came maybe the second afternoon where, Um, you know, after school day, the teachers gathered in in one of the rooms and they were talking about which students should earn their seats. So like I said, students had started by sitting on the cafeteria floor and they kind of went through and different teachers raised different students' names and gave reasons why they thought they shouldn't earn their seats. And these were things like you know, I told the student to stop eating at lunchtime and they didn't, they took another bite of their food or, um, you know, I told the student to fix how they were sitting on the floor and, you know, they refused to do that. Um, so as these students, you know, as these teachers are having this discussion, it, it just struck me like, you know, wow, you know, you know, during this orientation, these teachers are, are really, they were tasked with monitoring student behavior so closely, um, and what happened the next day is when the students came in, into school, uh, the, the teacher leading the session called out those students who hadn't earned their seats and sent them into a separate room. So everyone else was praised for earning their seats and they got to sit at the cafeteria tables where these students kind of were given, you know, a talk on why they didn't earn their seats, um, encouraged to, you know, Exhibit behavioral compliance, so they could earn them, um, and then marched back into that cafeteria and seated on the floor uh, in front of the other students. So um, compliance was made very visible, you know, in in this school. How
2: did you feel observing that? I mean, I mean, a, as a as an ethnographer, how do you? Um, I, I mean, I suppose I'm speaking as someone who who used to teach high school, and and you know. Of course, there's always going to be a certain amount of management of behavior, so to speak, but that's quite extreme, it seems to me, and kind of humiliating. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to know how, how you responded to that and, and how you manage your own emotional responses as an ethnographer.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a good question. And I, um, I tried not to not to intervene. It was the position I decided to take, um, except in in sort of making myself distinct from teachers in the sense that I wouldn't correct their behavior. So I wouldn't, um, and it, yeah, I wouldn't sort of discipline them or, you know, or tell them to get back in line. Uh, And it was interesting the students actually noticed that. So I remember, you know, one time, I did correct a student, you know, or I told them to, you know, get in line. And they said, oh, you know, Miss and you're switching sides because, you know, they recognized that I had actually made these uh, distinctions um, because teachers were constantly monitoring their behavior. So that was the position, you know, I decided to take. But I didn't, um, yeah, I didn't intervene, you know, if there were places, you know, where I felt uncomfortable, you know, for example, you know, Another ethnographer might, you know, ask the teacher, you know, or, or something, you know, um, you know, what, why, why, did you do that, or um, question those practices more. I, I kind of wanted to see see the practices play out, but certainly uh, there were moments where I was uncomfortable, especially um, there were there were some days where I felt like students were sitting. In classes where they were just silent, you know, one class after another class, and it was something I felt I could see because I followed the students from class to class, and maybe their teachers didn't recognize that, you know, um, because they only see what they're doing in their one class. So, yeah, times like that where it was it was very uncomfortable. Um, Or they have another practice called bench, which actually, you know, teachers in the school themselves were uncomfortable with, where. Students um, who had more serious infractions had this kind of form of in-school suspension where they had to wear a yellow shirt that the school had um, to show that they were on bench again. It, it was very visible. And as you said, it could be hum- humiliating for students. Um, and they couldn't talk to anybody throughout the day except the teacher. Um, they weren't given privileges like uh, sitting with their friends at lunch or participating in gym or extracurricular activities. Um... So, so things like that, certainly there are um, ethical, you know, questions raised there. Did you
2: find, how quickly did you see the students, um, it, for want of a better word, settle into the program um, and
0: sort of adjust to the expectations? Yeah, fairly quickly, um, I I guess you could say, I would say, you know, the first year is the hardest for students. So when I would interview students and ask them, you know, about their adjustment, uh, older students, you know, they would, they would talk about the first year being the most stressful, um, just, you know, even if they were good students, just learning to, um, be in a space where, where you are, you know, your behavior is constantly monitored, um, Corrected or praised. There was one student, you know, I uh, whose mother I spoke with, who said that her daughter, her fifth grade daughter, had to stay home for two weeks um, at one point because she was so stressed from being set up as actually a positive example for her peers. Uh, but I would say, like that, most students, you know, relatively quickly learned the expectations. Now, whether they wanted to follow those expectations, you know, is is another question um, certainly there was resistance throughout the whole school year uh, for some students and some teachers uh, but I think they they learned what they were supposed to do relatively quickly did you find
2: that students were able to articulate um, I guess I'm curious to know, and you do you do talk about it in the book, but the way that they understood these behavioural codes and whether their feelings about the scripts changed over time as they moved through the school years. You know, what, what are your observations on the students' sense of whether this was a, a, a good thing or not, I guess?
0: Yeah, I think there was variation. So I think some students you know, really appreciated the strictness of the school because they were comparing it to other schools they'd been at that they described as, you know, just chaotic. Um, And so they appreciated the order and the opportunity to learn. I I remember a student who said, you know, my other school was a zoo, you know, and you just, yeah, you couldn't get any learning done done there. Um, I think other students, I, I think one interesting finding, from, from the research was their perceptions of college. Like I had said before, the school framed these practices in terms of college preparation. So it led to this kind of different sense making among students. So some students uh, actually misunderstood that to mean uh, that college was very similar to the school in terms of its rigidity. Uh, and I remember having this this conversation early on and being surprised when I asked a student, you know, what do you think college is like? And they said, oh, strict, you know, and I said, oh, why do you think that? And they said, oh, because, you know, uh, the school is preparing for, you know, this is a college preparatory school and the school is really strict. So they um, didn't get, you know, understand that actually college is very flexible and very much the opposite of the environment they were in. On the other hand, we had students, and I think probably typically older students, it was in a middle school, so they were fifth to eighth grade. So eighth grade students uh, actually being very perceptive in recognizing that um, this school might not be actually, you know, preparing them for the skills and behaviors they would need for college, uh, saying that very explicitly, you know, like, in a college, they're not gonna give you, you know, a consequence for not turning your homework or you're, they're not gonna ask you to walk silently down the hallway, um, you're gonna have a lot more choice. So how is this school preparing us for that, right? If um, if that's what college is like. So yeah, so I, I would say a, a, a variation in how students uh, made sense of, of the strictness. We might come back to that question
2: about the extent to which the 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 sort of regime in the school prepared students for real college as opposed to imagined college um but I, I i'd be interested to hear a little about how the the use of these scripts shaped the hiring practices um how staff were selected because as you point out the it's very intensive micromanagement that they're being required to do so um, how did the school select the staff to who
0: they thought would be equipped to do that? Yeah, I think one surprising finding, what was the parallels I saw between student and teacher experiences. In many ways, they were subject to the same kinds of scripts and had, uh, in some ways, similar responses to them. So, in terms of hiring teachers, uh, the school prioritized. two two values, two norms. Um, One was mission fit and the other was coachability. So the idea of mission fit is we're looking at people who are committed to urban education, who believe in that kind of no excuses mentality that all these students can succeed and they're going to do whatever it takes to make those students succeed. In terms of coachability, this was the idea that we want novice teachers who are willing to take feedback, um, because the school had such a prescriptive model, they actually prioritized coachability over experience. So, you know, most schools would probably, you know, privilege experience. um, But here experience was seen as a potential obstacle, because teacher who had a lot of experience might have, you know, a particular way they want to teach a particular way they want to manage their classroom. And the school didn't want that the school wanted everybody in the school to follow the same system because they worried that if you had a couple teachers who didn't follow it, that might undermine the system and students might begin to question more, well, why do I have to do this, you know, in this class, if I don't have to do it in this other class. So many of their teachers were actually, you know, novice teachers, teachers with no experience, one, one year of experience, two years of experience that they saw as coachable. They um, they really liked teachers from, you know, Teach for America, for example, which is, you know, a program here in the U.S. that takes recent college graduates and puts them in kind of hard to staff under-resourced schools. Uh, so that was really the type of teacher they were looking to target, a teacher who would follow the script the school was using and
2: what did you see in the teachers how did how did they live that
0: experience yeah, again, there was variation there. So um, these schools have quite high turnover. The school I was at uh, actually the year before half of the teachers left the school. So the year I was there, um, the, the motto for that year, the kind of rallying cry was actually to make that school a better place to work for teachers. They decided um, they were going to focus on, on teacher retention that year, even more so than student achievement. So yeah, um, There were different reasons for for teachers leaving the school, but certainly a significant one uh, was some of the teachers discomfort with implementing the disciplinary scripts. So feeling like they didn't enter teaching, you know, to be a disciplinarian. Um, Because, you know, because of their role, many teachers were perceived in kind of antagonistic lens, like you're always picking on me. You're out to get me. So it was much harder for these teachers to develop positive uh, relationships with their students, even if they had been able to do that, you know, in other school settings. Um, but I mean, there were other teachers, oh, I, I was just going to say that um, were successful in this model, teachers who, who felt comfortable implementing these practices and didn't have to rely on them so much because they had more of kind of an authoritative presence in the classroom.
2: did you get a sense that the 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 teachers who hadn't much had much experience had they did they know what they were getting into i mean you know how much knowledge was there about what was really involved in teaching in a no excuses school do you think
0: yeah i don't think they really did i mean the school the school understood that this was going you know could potentially be a problem and they tried to be explicit about their expectations and have teachers come in, you know, to teach a class to understand. But I found that teachers were still quite surprised by the level of kind of behavioral management in the school. Um, it is interesting because you think they're hiring on Mission Fit, they're hiring teachers, you know, to be part of the culture, yet they, the, the, yet there were teachers they hired who came from. You know Montessori schools that have you know a very different model, um, so you might guess you know that teacher might not work well in this system. But uh, but yeah, but I think it, it was a surprise for many for many of the teachers.
2: What happened if a teacher wanted to try to be a little innovative or um, you know adjust the the script somewhat to suit their their kind of ideals or their comfort level or whatever it might be what how would the school respond to that
0: yeah so one um one positive element of the school was that they had you know a lot of teacher coaching and training so um, teachers did feel uh like professionals treated as professionals so each teacher had a teacher supervisor who would come observe their class weekly and meet with them weekly to give them feedback Uh, but the flip side of that of course is um this idea of of being kind of prescriptive about what teachers could and couldn't do. So in these coaching se- sessions, I observed a number of them. Um, I saw teachers kind of, you know, w- what express their discomfort with, with disciplinary practices, want to do other kinds of things um, pedagogically or behaviorally, and basically be told, you know, that's not the way we do things here. You know, you you don't have enough experience. This is what we know works. Um, one thing I didn't mention, you know, why these schools are, are so popular here is because they have had, you know, high standardized test scores. So they're seen as very academically successful. So the school kind of said, look, we're getting these great test scores. This method works. So, you know, you, you just need to follow it. Um, they were also told, you know, if you want to do those things, you first have to get behavior down. So there was a teacher who wanted to do, say, more group work or more project-based learning, and she was told by her supervisor, um, you can't do that until, you know, you have behavioral management down. Um, so I would say, you know, with some, maybe some more veteran teachers had a little more leeway, but even among them, I had teachers tell me that, like, you know – of the fun of teaching was lost when they felt that they were still asked to adhere to these scripts
2: i think you know one thing that that comes through in a lot of teacher preparation and also in conversations between teachers is the importance of building relationships with students Um, so i'm curious to know given the 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 strict kind of program that everyone was operating under, how those relationships were developed or if it was possible to develop them in the same ways as you might in another kind of school?
0: Yeah, I I think it was more difficult. I remember a teacher telling me, um, you know, the first time he was able to start developing these relationships was when they went on an ice skating field trip. So I think it was often when they were outside of this rigid school setting that students could begin to see teachers not just as, you know, disciplinarians, but actually as someone I might like to get to know. Um, So teachers, yeah, did talk about um, times where they would uh, do mentoring activities with students. And, you know, teachers did do this. They would take them, you know, to movies. They would take them out shopping. There was one teacher in particular who, created this mentoring program for black boys in the school because she saw them as not being successful. They were the students most likely to get infractions, most likely not to earn privileges at the school, like field trips and school socials. So she took it upon herself almost every weekend. Um, she would take a group of black boys out uh, to football games. She would buy McDonald's for them. She would drive them in her big van and was able to develop really positive uh, relationships with them. And um, as a result of that, she really saw behavioral changes, um, you know, from that method, which she thought worked better than the school's kind of rewards and consequences method.
2: You you talk in some detail about the relationship with authority and how um, Dream Academy had a certain set of expectations about the way students should. Um, interact with figures of authority Um, I'd it would be interested I'd I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that in relation to the end goal of going to college you know and your observations about the differences between a school like this one and say a more affluent school with a mainly white student population Um, that was a very interesting part of your book Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about
0: that. Yeah, so the school certainly emphasized deference to authority, and um, the idea that if you the idea that the teacher was was right. So teachers were constantly monitoring behavior, and sometimes they weren't right. So they would point out, you know, they would accuse a student of an infraction, but the student, you know, may not have actually been doing something wrong, like. Um, the student might actually have been trying to help somebody out or was it another student was talking to Why you know, why should I get um, punished, you know, for that? But, uh, you know, very early on, you know, the student affairs um, leader pointed out, you know, even if, even if you think you're right, you need to kind of defer, defer to authority. Um, they did, they did implement some things to try to address this issue of students feeling like they didn't have a voice and were treated unfairly. Uh, something called the putting up like three fingers and what they called the W sign, which stood for, you know, when can we talk? So this was the idea that you have to defer to authority in the classroom, but you could raise your three fingers and maybe at a later time, the teacher and you can, you know, talk through what happened. Um But it didn't work that well in practice just because teachers were so busy, so scheduled and didn't always have that time to talk with students. And I think something interesting, you know, there are these sort of classic sociological texts, um, you know, that argue that working class schools are are teaching skills like deference, uh, obedience, punctuality to working class kids in order to prepare them for working class jobs where, you know, you need to show up in time, you need to listen to your boss, right? Or you're going to get fired. Whereas middle class and more affluent schools are teaching skills like independence, assertiveness, creativity, um, to prepare students to be managers where they are going to lead and need to problem solve, Um so we see very different forms, uh, different, very different kinds of skills being taught in these schools. But what was striking to me was that this school. It was for low-income students, but it was trying to prepare them for college. It was trying to prepare them for the middle class, yet it was still emphasizing these same kinds of working class skills. Um, And in college, it really transfers. It's it's interesting. I'm actually writing a paper right now with a student who went to one of these schools, and he interviewed um, alumni of one of these networks um, about their college experiences and uh finds that these students had a hard time adjusting um and one one student talks about how he was surprised actually to observe how other college students interacted with faculty because they interacted with such ease and he either you know saw saw his teachers as people you had to be like very respectful towards you know um or people you wanted to be at a distance from um so had to learn in college. Actually, no, like your professor is someone you can go see, you know, for office hours. Your professor is someone you can, you know, ask help from. Um, so that that's something we know, you know, from research benefits students who who kind of seek out those, those resources. Um, and these students were not, you know, we're not learning. We're not learning that at this school. Did you get a sense that... Um...
2: Students that had gone on to college and were having that difficulty in adjusting, uh, or perhaps from the work that you're, you're, the person you're working with at the moment is is doing, were they able to identify the fact that the the no excuses style education had perhaps had that effect, or do you think that you know? I guess I'm I'm trying to understand whether that was an identifiable sort of reason for or whether it was one of a suite of reasons for for finding it difficult to adjust.
0: Yeah, they did they did point back to the Noakes things, particularly in the Noakes Uses school, that they felt um, made their adjustment difficult. Uh, in this study the students felt that they were academically prepared. Um, so that was a positive, but some of the main Obstacles were right. These relationships with faculty, and the other one they talked about a lot was this idea of handholding. Um, kind of in the No Excuses School, they had gotten so many structures. Uh, so when these structures were removed, they they weren't really prepared to kind of independently manage their time. Um, so that was also a challenge for them that they also attributed, you know, back uh, to the very different culture they had experienced
2: did you have an opportunity to talk to the leadership of dream academy about your findings and i mean you do you do discuss some possible ways of changing things you know you have some recommendations towards the end of the book um so given that they expressed an interest at the start of your project in what your findings would be. I'm curious to know whether that was something that actually did have an impact further down the track.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I don't know. Um, I did share with them, yeah, the findings that came out initially from the dissertation and some recommendations for the school as well as um, a first piece I had written and, you know, didn't receive, you know, much feedback. Um, so we had, we haven't really been in communication. I did hear from, uh, the founder of the school who, who read the book and, um, and took offense at it actually, was, it was insulted by the portrayal of the school. Um, but we had some back and forth and he, uh, came to a better understanding of, of what I was doing in the book and, and what, you know, what I was presenting, um, so that ended, you know, in a positive way. But I think I think from his perspective, um, he himself was a black man who had founded this school, you know, not from that community, but from a similar type of community. And I, I think it's a valid, you know, criticism to think here I am coming, you know, from the outside and to say, you know, in, in some ways, what right do I have right to come in and say, you should do things differently. Um, you know, to, to, to promote opportunity for these students who, um, yeah. So uh, so, so I don't know how much the school itself has changed its practices. Um, but I think from my perspective, I, I think I, I certainly hope I did and, and perhaps could have done more to show, you know, some of the constraints, some of the reasons why the school – implemented these practices and some of the tensions they observed themselves um, or felt themselves having
2: spent that time inside the school and and seeing what did and didn't work from the perspective both of students and and teachers um what were your thoughts about uh you know what could be what what was worth retaining and what maybe needed to be changed keeping that end goal in mind of the sort of you know educational opportunity and and college experience for everybody
0: yeah no that's a good question I think I think I you know I don't know if if the leadership would agree to me because I really saw their practices as a package deal that we have to be, you know, this rigid, we have to do all these hundreds of things uh, in order to keep order. Uh, but I felt, you know, uh, just relaxing on, on a lot of these disciplinary practices. So where you're not constantly monitoring behavior, um, you know, you can have some standards in place, some strictness, which I, I think students don't mind. I think it's more just, you know, not allowing them the freedom to walk down the hall and, and chat with their friends, you know, it, it felt like they were taking the strictness really to an extreme, um, with the teachers, you know, do you need to constantly monitor behavior right in a classroom? Um, you know, I, I felt the teachers were very dedicated and committed and, um, you know, there was instruction that, that, that I thought was positive and, um, a lot of the families, I think that's another to think about. A lot of the families whose children, you know, attend these schools are more stable families. Um, the children in many ways already have, you know, these behavioral skills that they know how to follow rules and, and, and they can do that. They, there are probably less behavioral problems you'll find in these schools than you would find in, you know, more traditional public schools where students may have experienced more trauma Um Because these are schools of choice, so families have to apply to them. Families also have to provide transportation to them. You know, there are no bus services to these schools. So, in some ways, the student population you're working with is a more stable population that I don't think needs right these these kinds of um, extreme tactics. So, I think just you know reducing those, giving students more room to. to express themselves, I think would would make um, the school experience, you know, more humane for them and make it easier to develop more positive relationships with their teachers, which we know is key, you know, to um, effective teaching and effective classroom management.
2: You you also talked about the, um, in a sense, the the copying of the script across different schools and and the impact of that for leadership if they wanted to implement changes or if they felt that something wasn't quite right um you know that it it, it affected what they could and couldn't do could you talk a little bit about what the opportunities were
0: for being in innovative as a leader
2: within one of those schools or not
0: Yeah, I thought that was an interesting paradox too. The idea that charter schools were formed to be innovative and experimental. And yet what's happened in the field is a successful model, you know, emerged this no excuses model. And so education being urban education being so difficult as it is, uh, what what these kind of young new school leaders did is they copied that model. They said, hey, here's a model that works, so we're going to implement it. And that's really how we see so many schools, you know, dozens of schools um, in these large networks that really follow this same model. Uh, and I think once you have this model that, that didn't develop organically, but was really a model you copied, you um, and a model really based on control rather than teacher expertise and experience, it does make it difficult to change it because you, you're afraid that if if you change it, you're going to start losing control. Um, and, you, and you may not have the staff, you know, really to be able to, to do that effectively. So you may not have the teachers who, you know are able to build positive relationships with students who have that cultural competence or community knowledge uh, to do that, right? Any new teacher, you know, struggles. Um, So if you, if you have a teaching staff of teachers who have only one or or two years of experience, I think it's going to be difficult. So, um, so I think that really limits innovation. That's not to say there isn't any innovation there. Um, I know there certainly are networks that, that give, are less prescriptive with their individual schools and give individual schools more autonomy over their practices and there are certain schools that have begun to experiment with for example different kinds of disciplinary systems like restorative justice systems Um, so so it's possible but i think uh yeah a, a school leader who's um trying to yeah trying to maintain order trying to raise test scores the incentives towards making change uh, may not be so high. I'm I'm curious to know whether
2: um, in the uh, teacher education courses, um, whether... I'm t- trying to think what the what the terminology is. It varies from university to university and country to country. But um, whether the student teachers uh, are are learning about these different approaches to schooling systems and the the, the potential um, scripts that they might meet if they end up working in a charter type school, as opposed to perhaps a different set of structures and approaches in a in other kinds of schools, is that something that's being explicitly taught to student teachers?
0: I'm not. I don't think across the board. And one interesting thing is that these charter schools themselves are forming their own um, teacher training programs. So they they are finding, you know, traditional programs kind of perhaps too theoretical, not giving, you know, enough practical guidance to their teachers. And in order to kind of get a head start to actually find teachers who fit their model, they'll, they're just training them themselves, you know, so um, teaching them the kind of techniques that uh, there's this popular book by Doug Lamov called Teach Like a Champion that's used um, very readily in in uh, schools like Relay Graduate School of Education, which was founded by these No Excuses leaders, um, and I've been recently learning about uh, other other programs that are um, that have been started to to train teachers specifically for one school. the The critique of these programs is that they're kind of giving teachers these technical this technical toolkit and not giving them sort of the theoretical foundations to know how or why to use certain techniques. Um, but I have to. to talked with teachers uh, who've been through these programs and, and feel that they, they are also getting, you know, um, more about sort of social context and theory, um, alongside of practice.
2: Yeah, that's very, that's very interesting. And in fact, I'm thinking that when you did your, um, observations, uh, in the school, that was back in, was it 2012 or 13? That's right. So quite a bit of times passed since then, and I'm wondering how the landscape of charter schools, no excuses schools, um, has changed in that time. If you've observed any new developments.
0: Yeah, I, I certainly think this uh, critique of their rigid disciplinary practices has become more public, and uh, many of these networks are acknowledging uh, the limitations and um, making sort of announcements uh, to change. So in the past few years, especially uh, here in the states, with the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, you are seeing you know schools like uh, the KIPP network, uh, the Noble Network in Chicago apologizing for apologizing to their alumni for racist disciplinary practices um, and committing uh, to changing those practices. At the same time, I mean, I. I hear from, you know, teachers um, who have who've come across my book or come across some article on my book um, on a regular basis. Uh, I continue to hear from them and, and they tell me, you know, what I read is so similar to what I'm experiencing in my schools. Um, and I also have heard from students and alumni saying the same thing, that these types of practices persist in their schools. So um, I think it's You know, it's it's great to see um, some of these schools uh, rethinking, reflecting on their practices, making changes. But I think there is still um, a lot of a lot of change that can be done.
2: So on that note, what what are you working on at the moment Um, and is it still connected to that work or have you moved into new
0: areas? Yeah, so there are a few things that are connected. So this uh, piece I was mentioning on um, the college experiences of, of No Excuses alumni I'm working on with um, Michael Martinez. And I've also been working on sort of a broader overview of kind of school choice research in the past 15 years. And what have we learned about uh, school choice and its um how how does the research rub against the theory for uh, for expanding school choice? So including charter schools, but also other kinds of school choice options we have here like magnet schools and vouchers. Uh, My empirical work has gone um, a little bit of a different direction. Uh, It's related to my interest in how uh, children learn these kind of social and behavioral skills. But instead of in the school setting, I'm looking in the family setting. So I have um, been working... Uh, with some collaborators on this video project where we recorded families with young children children ages two to four inside their homes for two weeks uh, so we put actually you know standalone video cameras in kind of up to four rooms in their homes and um, I've been been watching those videos uh, examining, how how families from different social class backgrounds and racial backgrounds um, socialize their children into different skills and values. That sounds extraordinary.
2: I really look <laughs> forward to reading about it or seeing it. Is it something? How how are you going to present uh, your findings? Do you think will it be another book or or are you looking at some kind of audiovisual? Um...
0: Yeah, it will be a book or or articles because unfortunately the data are. Um, you know, protected they're confidential, so we unfortunately can't show the videos themselves, which I think would be fascinating. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'll, I'll have to I'll have to describe what I see. Well, that sounds
2: really interesting. Please keep me posted as as that work evolves and and uh, when you publish anything about it. Um, and I'd really like to thank you for taking the time to do this interview. Uh, and I encourage listeners to read the book because um there's it's it's meaty there's a lot in there and we've we've touched on some of the key elements but I think you'll find there's a lot more in there that we haven't had time to discuss
0: well I really appreciate yeah you're taking the time to engage with me uh on the book